Psalm 18. I want to talk to you this morning about the victorious king of the nations. His name is Jesus. And I want to talk to you about that from Psalm chapter 18, verses 20 through 50. So we're going to read every single one of those verses. I want to ask for your patience and your diligence to, to stay in there as we work through these 30 verses of text. Are you ready? Psalm 18, beginning in verse 20. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself Blameless with the pure, you show yourself pure, and with the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God? But the Lord. And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds' feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me. Your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued me under, subdued under me those who rose up against me. Verse 40. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as the head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners Fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and to his descendants, or literally his seed, forever. Would you bow with me? King Jesus, you are all over Psalm 18, and I pray, God, that you would give us grace to see more clearly who you are. God, that we would 
not diminish your greatness, but that we would delight in it. God, that you would give us eyes to see just how great a salvation you have secured us, because it comes from so great a king. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome back to Psalm 18, a psalm which uses the rise of King David's life to the throne as a preview of coming attractions. So David is facing an enemy. His name is King Saul. He's also facing the enemies of the people of Israel, primarily the Philistines, and God gives him a victory that seems unlikely. Looks like he's going to die. Looks like he's going to be destroyed forever, and yet David gets a victory. But his victory is a preview of a greater victory that's going to come through his seed or his son, mentioned in verse 50, who's going to conquer not just Saul, not just the Philistines, but death, hell, and the grave. And the reason David knows that God's going to give him victory is not because David is special, but because God has made a special covenant with him to provide a son in the line of David. And so Jesus is the one who walks confidently even to the cross with perfect love for the Father. The first verse of this psalm says, I love you, O Lord. Jesus obeyed out of love for the Father, a a forever, perfect, everlasting love that they had always had, and He enters into time and space and robes Himself in our humanity so that He could be a substitute for us. And it isn't just that Jesus loves the Father, but the Father keeps on loving the Son. We saw in verse 19 that the Lord delighted in Him. So what we have in Psalm 18 is a poetic and a prophetic portrayal of Christ, who although He is God, would humbly come as a man and serve the Lord so that we could have a victory that we could not secure for ourselves. And that as a result, when He changes us, that we could obey and be faithful to the Lord as He has obeyed and been faithful to the Lord. And all this is unto the reason, unto the purpose, that we could serve and worship and know Christ as King of all nations. He is the anointed, He is the King, verse 50, and we owe Him our worship. So Jesus has come, and He's conquered death and hell, and the grave, all of those things that we deserve because of our sin, Christ has conquered. And the question that we ought to ask is, how can I get in on that? How can His victory be my victory? And we see, as we continue in Psalm 18, some more of the things that we need to know and affirm in order to have a share in the victory of Christ the King. First, we must seek the King who is victorious because He is blameless. Did you know there's only one person in all of human history who can be saved by his works? It's Jesus. You can't be saved by your works, but you can be saved by the works of Jesus on your behalf. You can be saved by the one who was perfectly blameless before the Lord. Secondly, we must seek the king who wages war with confidence in the Lord's character and in the Lord's word. Thirdly, we must seek the king who conquers his enemies. And finally, we must surrender to the victorious king of nations. First, we need to seek the king who is victorious because he is blameless. Verses 20 through 24 establish for us that the Lord's servant is victorious because he is, you see it in verse 23, blameless with him, meaning blameless with the Lord. What does it mean to be blameless? 
To be blameless is to be whole, to be complete, to have integrity. What Jesus said and He did and He thought was always aligned with what the Lord desired for and from Him. And therefore the Lord rewards Him. Do you see that in verse 20? And He recompenses Him. The word recompense means to to make a complete turn of something. You say, well, Jesus didn't need a complete turn of anything. He was perfect. Well, he went through death, and the Lord God Almighty made him whole in the resurrection. Why? Not because he was just Jesus, but because he was blameless before the Lord. His life cried out for vindication because there was no sin that he had committed, and God had to raise him up because it didn't make sense that he would have to die. He was blameless. Verse 24 nearly repeats verse 20. But it adds these words, that he was blameless in his eyes, meaning in the Lord's eyes. When I ask Samuel or Elizabeth to clean their room, do you all ever do that, parents? Hey, just clean your room up. I've come to a realization that the way my son defines clean is not the way that I define clean. Anybody, anybody tracking? Hey, daddy, I did it. You did? That could have fooled me. But what the text is saying by saying that he's blameless in the eyes of the Lord is that there's no phony baloney going on. There's no sleight of hand. Jesus isn't saying, well, look, I was blameless, but not really. No, he was blameless in the eyes of God. And under the most difficult circumstances, by the way. Betrayed by his friend, tempted by Satan in the wilderness, for 40 days, arrested by Roman soldiers when he could have called a legion of angels to his defense, he never once took matters into his own hands. He left himself completely in the hands of his father. And he did it, how? Verse 21, by always keeping the Lord's ways and never departing from them. Verse 22 tells us he kept God's ordinances and his statutes. The ordinances of God are how we relate to one another. When he was slapped, when he was spit upon, he never reviled, he never spoke wickedly. He always related to others in the way that God would ask him to do. Keeping God's statutes means to be right with God, the ways that he was supposed to honor God. He always, under the lordship of the Holy Spirit, in submission to the Holy Spirit, he always did God's will in God's way. He never took a shortcut, even when faced with the cross. The servant who becomes king of all nations, is blameless before the Lord. Everything about him is in integrity. I want you to look with me at verse 23 for a moment, the second half. There are times when you study God's word that it just smacks you, and it's like, goodness, that's amazing. That happened to me this week. I kept myself from my iniquity. Well, which is it? Did you... Do you have iniquity or did you not have iniquity? Did you sin or did you not sin? I, what's going on here? Now, to fix this little conundrum, some translations drop the my. And your translation might say, I kept myself from iniquity. But the my is there. And the question that we face is, how did he not have iniquity, but he had iniquity? And if it's King David, then maybe we would say, well, he had a sin nature. But on his rise to the throne, he did not sin in his rise to the throne. He he kept himself from his iniquity. And so that's, that's one reading of the text. But there's something deeper going on here. Because we know this is a prophecy of Christ because Paul tells us 
so in Romans chapter 15, verse 9. And so if Psalm 18 is about Jesus, what in the world does it mean that he kept himself from his iniquity because he didn't know any sin? But don't you know the beautiful truth of the gospel? 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him, Jesus, who didn't know any sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, Jesus wasn't a sinner, but he gladly assumed in obedience to the Father the sin that was yours so that it could be nailed to the cross. Anything that's unclean touches us makes us unclean. But when our sin touches the cleanliness of Christ, it is eradicated. It is cast as far as east is from west. And he never once gave in to your iniquity so that it could become his iniquity and he could stand as your substitute. And on the day of judgment, the Lord God Almighty wouldn't have to look at your sin and say, you're a wicked sinner. He could say, you're delivered by grace through the work that my son did on your behalf. And because Jesus was blameless, and because the Spirit of God is still at work in 2019, taking what Jesus did on the cross and working miracles in the heart of people, you too can begin to live in the way that Jesus did. You're not going to be perfect all of a sudden. But he's going to change your heart and give you new attitudes and new appetites and new desires. And you can begin to be blameless in the face of adversity just as Jesus was. One of the things that Christians often say that drives me crazy, and I often want to think it and say it to myself, is, well, you just don't know what I was going through. I know what Jesus went through. You don't know what she said to me. You don't know how hard my boss is on me. Oh, I can be blameless for Jesus until adversity comes. Is that the gospel? No. Jesus stared down the cross blamelessly. Adversity, church, in the life of a believer isn't the time to give up or cop out or make an excuse for unchristlike behavior. Adversity is the time that you prove that you belong to Him. Adversity is the time that you need the Spirit of God to motivate you and animate you and make you live for Jesus when it's hard. Are you all here this morning? You can't do it, but Jesus has done it and the Spirit of God applies that kind of power to your life. Secondly, we've got to seek the King who wages war with confidence in the Lord's character and in the Lord's Word. How do you face adversity unless you know God's going to come through? Unless you know He's good on His promises. This is what Jesus' life shows us. His victory over death and hell and the grave. It wasn't easy, but it was as certain as His God and God's Word. When the spikes of the nails were going into His wrists and everything about His circumstances were shouting at Him, God abandoned you, God abandoned you, God abandoned you. The Lord did not abandon Him. He rested in the character and the promises of God. As he was nailed to the cross, he was saying, God, with the kind, you show yourself kind, even though it doesn't seem that way. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless, even though it doesn't seem that way. With the pure, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you show yourself astute, even though it doesn't seem that way, God. Even though it seems that the world is winning. Even though it seems that the wicked are winning. Even though it seems like death is going to win. I trust you, Lord. Because you're kind. Verse 25. The word kind in verse 25 is the same word translated later in verse 50 as loving kindness or mercy. It refers to the covenant faithfulness of God. In Hebrew it's the word kesed. To those who conduct themselves blamelessly, God is blameless. To those who are pure in heart, God is pure. 
But to those who are twisted or crooked or corrupt, the Lord seems twisted to them. Kyle and Delich say it this way, God's conduct to man is the reflection of the relation in which man has placed himself to God. Have you ever noticed that about people? They're foul-mouthed, they're wicked, they don't want to have anything to do with God, and then as soon as you bring up God's this big meanie, he's this big killjoy. The reason they don't see the goodness and the kindness of God is because they've positioned themselves in relation to God that they can't see how good he is. And they can't hear the, the message that God is not some big old meanie. Yes, he's got really, really, really high standards. But the problem is not God's standard. The problem is their sin. And they can't hear the message of the gospel because they can't get over the fact that God came down to do for them what they could not do for themselves. He came to give us the very righteousness that we did not have. This is why, church, we so desperately need Jesus. We couldn't, make, we couldn't, we couldn't jump that high. We couldn't climb that mountain. We couldn't cross that chasm between us and God. But because Jesus is sinless and applies His sinless life to all who trust in Him, the blessings of God are available to sinners who lay down their sinful and self-serving lives and take up Christ as their life and His mission as their purpose. Even as He died, Jesus believed. He was confident. He knew, verse 27, that God would save a poor or afflicted people and that He would humble the proud. We know Jesus was confident in the Lord and in His Word, because He goes all the way to the cross with that confidence. At any moment, He could have gotten off the cross. At any moment, He could have called for the defenses, but He remains humble, trusting that the Lord God Almighty would deliver Him. The Lord was His light in adversity, verse 28. God was blameless to Him, even as He hung on the cross, verse 30, and His Word was reliable. Do you see that in verse 30? The Word of God is tried. Have any of you ever heard the expression, tried and true? He's tried and true. That's, that's where this comes from. This is what this means, that it will not fail. God's word is tested. It's perfect. It's not able to fail. That's good news, church. God is, doesn't just exist. He speaks. A God who exists but doesn't speak doesn't do us any good. A God who exists and has perfect holy standards that we violated and has not given us a love letter to tell us how we can be reconciled to him doesn't do us any good. But guess what? God gave us his word. And here's some better news. The whole thing is perfect. You don't have to be inspired to spot the spots where it's inspired. There's, there's a bunch of people who claim to be Christians who think, well, there's, this contains the Word of God, but it isn't the Word of God. And I've got to have the Holy Spirit to sort out what is and what is not the Word of God. You know what that is? A bunch of hooey. Because you know what they all end up doing? They all end up creating a Bible in their own image rather than the image of God. And they distort their view of God so that they can be right with a God who doesn't exist. And you claim to be a Christian and not have a Bible that's inspired, you're not a Christian at the end of the day. When we believe, when we really believe like Jesus believed in the, in the perfect, inerrant word of God, we will stake our lives on it knowing that on the other side of death there is resurrection. The king was confident in his God and in God's word. Thirdly, we've got to seek the king who conquers his enemies. The king who conquers his enemies. For much of the remainder of Psalm 18, David is giving credit to the Lord for his victory. Who other, I love verse 31, do you see verse 31? 
Let me turn there real quick. Who is God but the Lord? Who is God but Yahweh? Do you know the answer to that question? It's a rhetorical question, right? The psalmist use rhetorical questions all the time. You do it with your kids, right? Didn't I tell you? What's the answer to that? Yes, you, you did tell them. Who is God but the Lord? The answer is nobody. This, this is David's way of saying, there is no one. Where else would I go? Who else would I trust? Who else would I cling to? There's no one but God. Oh, other people will try other gods as their rock and their anchor in the storm. And if we were going to change our metaphor from a rock to an anchor, if you go out into, onto the sea and a storm of life comes and you throw your anchor out overboard and it's anything but the Lord, guess what? It turns into a giant floaty. It's not going to do you any good. It's not going to moor your ship in the storm. It's not going to hold you fast. But the Lord God Almighty is a rock who will not fail, unlike all the other rocks that are out there. Moses says it this way, their rock is not as our rock. There's only one God who is a rock who is truly with you in all things, and His name is Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to take your place and make you His own. He is a rock who does not fail. Yes, it seemed that David would die and be defeated, but the Lord, his refuge, did not fail him. Look at verses 31 through 36 quickly. His strength and his speed and his precision and his sure-footedness, they don't come from David, they come from God. And he's safe in God's right hand, which is a source of deliverance through death and a source of victory, verse 35. And they sustained him just as Jesus was sustained all the way to and through the cross. And then I love the second line of verse 35. Your gentleness makes me great. Your gentleness makes me great. I remember going to school over here at Northside in the locker room. There were some guys who had to show you how great they were. By whipping the tar out of some other guy. Or being the filthiest mouth in the locker room. Let me show you how great I am. But the greatness of our king is not displayed by his domination over others, but his invitation that you would receive of him. Oh, I'll wait on the Lord. I'll wait on the Lord to deliver me. God, I I don't have to be great. The fact that you called me the last born of Jesse out of the field, herding sheep to slay Goliath, the enemies of God's people, and get him in one fell swoop, that makes me great. God, the fact that you've called me to be king, and I don't know why, over an ever-expanding kingdom is evidence of your grace and mercy and gentleness and kindness to me. God, I don't know why you let me do this, but thank you. The source of our greatness is not that we have to be great, but that he has called us out of death into life. That makes you great. Jesus, through God, lived as a man with the same perspective as David did in facing down death for us. How did Jesus withstand the constant attacks and nagging of the Pharisees? He knew God had called him. It doesn't matter what you think of me. God is my Father. How did Jesus handle 40 days in the wilderness with the temptation of Satan with no food? The food of doing the will of his Lord was enough for him. God's gentleness or his kindness toward him, the confidence that he had in his relationship with the Father made him cool under pressure. Jesus doesn't have to force his greatness on you. Just look at his life and you will see that he is great. 
The way he lived his life, he has proved it. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His victory, by the way, is not even close, right? I mean, if this is a boxing match, because though he shows his greatness through his gentleness, there's coming a day when he's going to vindicate his death. He's going to vindicate his name, and he will trample over his enemies. And when that happens, it's not even close. If it's a boxing match, Jesus wins with one punch. And surprisingly, he wins by taking the punch. Christ's resurrection is the beginning and the assurance of the end of everything that rejects Jesus. Oh, you could say Jesus didn't need to die. You could say Jesus isn't raised from the dead. But the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the gospel, keeps convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment. And what we have in verses 37 through 43 is the language of complete and total domination. The enemies of God's servant king. Do you see it? Verse 37, they're consumed. In verse 38, they're shattered. In verse 39, they're subdued. In verse 40, they're destroyed. In these verses, we've quickly moved from the servant's distress at the cross or in adversity to his total domination. David goes from oppressed by his own people to the king of a large and growing kingdom. Jesus goes from being oppressed by his own people, rejected even at Nazareth, to king of a large, growing, global, and everlasting kingdom. And when Jesus returns, you hear that siren? When Jesus returns, when the siren wails, it's going to be too late. You see verse 41? You say, well, that seems harsh. It's truth, church. They cried for help, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but He did not answer them. God has given you everything you need to give your life to Him and to be trusting in Him and delivered by Him. Paul says this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Do you know this, King? The question that this psalm raises for all of us is, who is this king and how can I be on his side? Who is this king and how can I be on his side? And the answer to that final question is found in verses 43 through 50. We've got to surrender to the victorious king of nations. You see, salvation comes through surrender, not through being great in your own power. In verse 43, the Lord delivers his servants from the disputes or the contentions of the peoples or of the nations by making him once for all the head of all nations. I love verse 43. Do y'all ever get tired of reading the news? You ever get tired of Google? I mean, what's North Korea doing today? What's going on with China? What's Trump doing with China? What's trying to do with Trump? What did Trump tweet today? How's it impacting the stock market? And that's, some, some of you, probably not many of you, but some of you spend your whole life consumed with that stuff. Why? Why? Yes, be an informed voter when election day comes around, but don't, 
Don't lose your appetite or your sleep over stuff that at the end of the day is going to not matter because Google's not going to be making little posts about what's going on in world conflict after Jesus comes back. Jesus comes back, you don't need the New York Times or the Washington Post or Google or any of those other things to tell you about the adversity and the contentions of the world because socialism's going to end and communism's going to end and all the other isms are going to end and there's going to be a dictatorship. And it's going to be a great one. His name is Jesus. He's king and he's a benevolent dictator to all who surrender their lives to him in the here and now. World peace does not come from the halls of Congress. It doesn't come from an executive order or the United Nations. World peace comes through submission to the servant of the Lord who conquered death and is right now uniting all nations under him as head over God's forever kingdom. You don't believe me? Read your bulletin. John Fulmer left Washington, D.C., the comforts of living in, in the Americas, and he went to Dubai, and the guy is amazing. I heard him preach at Southeastern Seminary, a phenomenal expositor of God's Word. He explained it so well, and he told about the church that he's pastoring. There's red, yellow, black, white, everything in between, and they come from all different kinds of languages, and yes, English is what unites them there because it's an international community, but they've got members from London, from Washington, from... Uh, Dubai, from Calcutta, they've got members from all over the world. You don't have to be an American to be a part of his church. You just have to surrender to the king. And that's what a local church is. Did you know churches aren't American or Chinese or any Bangladeshi? They're none of those things. We are not representatives of any government other than his government. We are a local outpost. We are an embassy of the kingdom of God and we are shining the light like a beacon into a lost and dying world saying we know that the people are contending. We know that the news is bad. We know that the stock market is up and it's down and your boss is crazy one day and fine the next. But if you're looking for a place to live that will never disappoint, it's called the new heavens and the new earth and we're putting that on display at North Roanoke Baptist Church right now. Come on in. The water's fine. To be a Christian, you must submit to Christ the King. Have you submitted to Christ the King? We are all dead in our trespasses and sin apart from saving faith in Christ. Christ's enemies become His friends through the door of surrender. In other words, to have life in Christ, you've got to let Jesus conquer you now rather than later. Have you been conquered by Christ? So much better to be conquered now than when he comes again in vindication of his life and death and resurrection. Look at verse 44. As soon as they hear, as, isn't that amazing? As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners means any, that's us. Anybody who was alien to the people and the purposes and the plan of God can be rescued when they submit to God. All you got to do is obey. All you got to do is surrender. All you've got to do is submit. You've got to let Christ conquer you. You can surrender now and be conquered by Him now, and it's much better to be conquered by Christ now rather than later. You say, Daniel, that sounds harsh. You mean I've got to let Jesus conquer me? It isn't just coming and getting my best life now and buying everything I ever wanted and just having everything go amazing in my life. That's not Christianity because that's what I heard on CBN. No, that's not what Christianity is. 
Christianity is being conquered by the king before it's too late. There are attitudes and, and desires that you have in your life that don't come from Christ. And when you give your life to Christ, you write a blank check. You sign it. You say, God, whatever you want to do with my life, wherever you want to send me, wherever you want to go, whatever attitude you want to show me in my heart that does not conform to your image and to your kingdom and help people get saved, that's what I want to do. Here's a blank check signed with Daniel James Palmer. Take my life and let it be holy there, holy yours. God will conquer your life now. And when he conquers your life, you say, well, that sounds awful. It's great. Because he doesn't just leave you as a nothing. He replaces all that stuff with good desires and good affections and good appetites. And he gives you a community called a local church, which is just a giant marketing department for Jesus. It's more than that. But it's definitely that. Because how are the nations going to hear about this king? He puts you in the battle. Where, where is it that these foreigners are submitting to Jesus? They're doing it every day as people get out of pews and they walk down aisles and they surrender their self to Christ. They do it when people like Brian Paul Hamas go into Honduras and he proclaims the name of Jesus and they're like, who's Jesus? And he's like, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about him. And then people start getting baptized and they've been cohabitating and having multiple wives and they, all, they repent of that stuff. How does that happen? Because somebody told them about Jesus who was king we got to tell them, church. And our message is simple. Surrender to the king. And when we go and say surrender to the king and tell them who he is, some will lay down their arms. They will lay down their pride and their excuses and their desire to do it their own way. And they will, do you see it in verse 45? They will fade away. They will fade away as the enemies of God and they will be raised up to something new. Paul says it this way, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things, do you hear it? Have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Has Christ conquered your life? Is he your everything? Do you want to have life that comes only by knowing that death can't hold you? Then surrender to King Jesus and be held in his care. Do you want life forever with the king of nations singing praises to the Lord, verse 49? Then surrender to Christ. The invitation is clear. Come trembling out of your worthless fortresses. Do you see that in verse 45? Your, your pride's not going to help you in the day of judgment. Your excuses aren't going to help you in the day of judgment. All the things that you build in your life to say, this will protect me from God's judgment. I can ignore God. They're not going to help you in that day. Come out of your fortress and come to Christ, the rock who never fails, who delivers from death to life everlasting. Today is the day to be conquered by Christ. As Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he can be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he, the Lord God Almighty, will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon your sin. This morning, if you're not yet surrendered and submitted to Christ the King, let be, today be the day of salvation. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we beg of you that you would stay near to us. 
in these next few moments. God, we know you're always near, you're always close, but that we would be aware of your presence. And God, if there's something that anyone needs to do in turning over their life to you, God, maybe a marriage that's about ready to fall apart and a husband who's, who's just heard this morning, God, if you can face death for me, I can face anything for my bride. God, maybe, maybe a, a wife who's been praying for a husband for so long and, and wondering if you'd ever break through. And, and maybe, God, today is the day, Lord, that her husband would say, I, I don't care about my pride anymore. I just want to lay it down and take up life in Christ and be the husband and the father that God's calling me to be. God, it might be somebody who's been attending church their whole life. God, they could check all the boxes, but they're still dead on the inside. There's no joy because they don't really know you. God, today, would you conquer their life? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.